0: god is doing something in our church and i think if you have been in the ch- this church for a long time i hear comments from you are the the group that gathers every tuesday at 4 pm to pray we're always making comments um, about how things that this church has been praying for for years and years and years we're seeing happen and um, many of you have come and decided to make this your church because you sense something's happening here as as the pastor who sees all of the things that are wrong and who has a list of things that, that I'm supposed to be helping the church get to as we move out of redevelopment and into health as a church. Sometimes I can be like, is stuff really happening here? Like I see it, but but then there's just moments where I'm like, I realize that I've I've kind of lost sight of that a little bit. And one of the ways I realize it is last week when Rufus was here, um, so, all week long Rufus has been texting me and calling me and just like man I'm, I I love your church God is doing something I, I was just so exciting to be there and people are hungry and uh, and talking with people he's like something is happening and I'm like oh uh, and then there was a guy that brought Rufus who was chauffeuring him last week and um, we had st- a prayer at the beginning of the service but right before service started he grabs my hand and he grabs Rufus hand and he's like can, can we just take a moment and pray and I'm like okay so we're holding the hands down here and he's praying and he's tearing up and his heart is pouring out and when he gets to the end and he, he, he says amen and he's like I'm sorry just the spirit is here and doing something and I just felt like I had to respond That was before Rufus had even got up here and and talked to us. And then this week, um, or last week, I got to go uh, teach at another church in town. During the week, uh, they wanted me to come teach on prayer. And then during the week, I met with someone who'd come to that class, um, who wanted to uh, connect about prayer and discipleship and share a bit about his ministry. And as we were there, he was telling me some things that were on his heart. And I was like, oh, I wish you could have been at our church on Sunday to hear Rufus because what Rufus is saying and what you're saying are so alike. And he's like, oh, I was there. He's like, I turned up on Sunday because I just wanted to see what was going on in your church. And the Spirit is moving. So that's three people of influence from different parts of the globe. Uh, Some of them in ministry, some of them in the secular workplace, all of them turning up here and going, God is doing something. Um, So that excites me. God is here and he's moving. And to some degree, it scares me a little bit. Are we going to do something wrong? And he's suddenly going to stop. So it's our job to keep pressing into Jesus, to keep listening for his voice, to keep standing on his word, to keep loving one another, to make sure our hearts are open and receptive so that he can continue to do what he's doing here. So it's awesome, right? So uh, thank you for being along for the ride. Uh, God is moving and it's only just beginning. So, we're in this series, First Timothy, where we are, uh, why are we looking at this book? We're working towards, so, so again, for context, for people in the room that don't understand, we are part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, a few years ago, the church got into a sticky situation and numbers were declining, things were stagnating, the pastor had moved on. Uh, the church here made the really uh, wise and courageous decision to go to the district office and say, hey, we're struggling. Uh, and we need some help. And so the district office does what's called redevelopment. So they strip the church of its autonomy, they suspend the bylaws, they remove the leadership, um, they suspend membership. Um, and they, they, in many senses, the church becomes a sub-ministry of our district and our district starts to lead the church and they become the elder board. They brought in an outside uh, agency to come and assess the health of the church, bring in an interim pastor um, to help the church think through some of the issues of the past, where they were at the present, start dreaming ahead to the future. Um, And then in that process, then to look for a new pastor would be who I get to be the guy that comes in on the back of that and, and lead things forward. But all of this is trying to bring the church from a place where it was struggling into a place of health. Uh, And there's lots of metrics that the district wants to see. They want to see numbers increase. Uh, They want to see children and multi-generations in the church. They want to see people come into faith. They want to see the church get to a place where it's financially self-sustaining. They want to see a new leadership structure in place and a new discipleship and leadership development process put in place. And all of those things are things that we've been working on. And and many of the metrics are things that we're seeing. Um, And I think I've said this before, but the district office, we, we had a meeting recently um, and, and there were lots of churches involved in this call and, and as they're talking about things, and you know, th- this church over here, they're, they're going through this process and uh, they're probably gonna have to change their name like like Arise Church did. And this church over here, they're doing these things. They probably need to do what Arise Church has been doing. And, and this church over here, and, and they're working on this, and, and uh, we probably need to pair them up with Arise Church. And one of my buddies is private messaging me going, look at all the shout outs you guys are getting. And I hadn't even noticed. Uh, I'm just listening to what's going on so with what is happening here uh, people are paying attention to the way things are being done here But the last steps to get out of what the district calls redevelopment and into what they call reaccreditation or functioning healthily and autonomously as a church uh, are things that we're working on. And as we're looking at how do we get there, we said, let's look at 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy is uh, outlining what it looks like to be a healthy church, how the church is supposed to function, how we're supposed to uh, go back to chapter one, how we're supposed to stand on the truth and guard the doctrine of the church. How we're supposed to be motivated by love for one another and the people out there. How prayer is supposed to be the center of everything that we do as the church. Men are to lift up holy hands in prayer. How uh, Paul is addressing the women and telling them that it's more important that they're godly and kind and, and humble on the inside than it is about how fancy they look on the outside. He goes on and tells us the character of leaders that lead the church forward. They're supposed to be above reproach and not angry or drunk that they manage their household well that they know the word and know how to teach it all of these things leading us forward and so we're at the point now we're at the end of chapter three moving into chapter four uh, and and at this point in the book Paul is given his thesis for the whole book which is going to explain why this is where we're sitting we're going to read 1st uh, chapter 3 we're going to start verse 14 and we're going to read through into the beginning of chapter 4. Um, as Paul is, uh, Paul is explaining to Timothy why is he writing this letter and then we're going to ask the question what does this mean for us and how is this going to help us as we continue to journey uh, into a church that's walking in full health and doing all the things that God is calling us to do. Long introduction to get here. So 1st Timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 14 let's read uh, uh, Paul says, Although I hope to come to you soon, so Timothy, I hope I'm going to make it to Ephesus to see you. I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the spirit was seen by angels was preached among the nations was believed on in the world was taken up in glory the spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. So the overarching question for us today, as we look at this passage is going to be this are we conducting ourselves appropriately? Are we conducting ourselves appropriately? We could think back two weeks ago to Jim preaching and given us the image of the splash zone. You remember what it's like to be sitting in the splash zone soaked by the water that comes over. And the invitation he gave us is to live the kind of lives that water is flowing over us and splashing onto the lives of the people round about us are we conducting ourselves appropriately? We could think back to last week, as Rufus gave us this, for me, a hard hitting exhortation to put discipleship back at the center of what we're doing. And if we're not about the great commission, can we truly call ourselves disciples of Jesus? If we're not sharing our faith with the people around us, can we truly call ourselves Christians? Are we conducting ourselves appropriately as we walk in the church? Maybe we make it a little bit more personal and and ask it this way are you conducting yourself appropriately as someone in the household of God the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of truth I want you to sit with that question and today is an invitation again to evaluate the way that you're living So Paul's instructions to Timothy, as with all of the Bible, are given as this invitation. Evaluate your conduct. I've written this letter. This is Paul's purpose for the whole letter. I've written this so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. I uh, had a mentor that used to say to me all the time, as you look at your life and you read the Bible, if how you live your life and what you read in scripture do not align, begin the process of change. If how you're living your life and what you read in scripture do not align, begin the process of change. Hands up in the room if your your life is fully aligned with the teachings of scripture. Good. We've got, we've got at least some self-awareness in the room. Let's think for a moment how many people in the room have an area of brokenness that you know you walk in and multiple times you read a book, you hear a sermon, you're in a conversation, you listen to a song, you hear something on the radio and you feel convicted once again that your life needs to look different. Yeah, right, that's all of us. Why? Have you not changed? Right. How many times did God, does God have to say, we're talking about the same issue again? Will you do something? We have to begin the process of change. Everything that Paul is writing to Timothy is helping him understand this is the life we're supposed to live. This is the shape the church is supposed to take. If how we're functioning as a church And what we read in the Bible about what the church is supposed to look like don't align. We change our church to align with what he's asking us to do. That is our job. That's my job and the job of our leadership team as we try and take the church to a place of health. I want to just make a couple of comments in here. Evaluate your conduct, right? I've written so that people will know how they ought to conduct themselves. And then he uses these descriptions in God's household the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. I love these descriptions. God God loves to use this household language to describe his people and how we're supposed to function. Uh, There's a phrase you may have heard someone say before. If you're a parent in the room, you might have said this before. If you live under my roof, you will live by my rules. Has anyone ever heard someone say that or said it? right I think it's particularly true as children become a little bit more autonomous move into adulthood maybe they move to college and then they come back they're living back in the house again you're living under my roof it's my rules I think this is what God is saying at this moment in the scriptures if you consider yourself part of my household you live under my roof and so you live by my rules we know that's the case But every person sitting in this room, myself included, is living under God's roof and living by our own rules. And I'm sorry to tell you that your own rules are actually the rules of the dominion of darkness that we are submitted to and choosing to live under instead. We're called to live with appropriate conduct as people who are part of his household. So not only do we live under his roof and live by his rules, he goes on to describe it's not just a household, this is the church of the living God. Remember we're in Ephesus, a culture surrounded by multiple deities. At the center of it all is this idea of Artemis and celebrating this uh, ancient Greek God. The word church just means the gathering of people and he's delineating. This is not a dead God. This is not a lifeless God. This is the living God. So we're not in a household where the the parent is, is dead. We're living in a household where the parent is alive and well, where God is living and moving. When we seek him, he can be found by us. We can have relationship with him. He will communicate with us. And so when it comes to how do we function in his household, how do we conduct ourselves? It's in relationship to this living God asking him what he wants for us. And then he goes further, it's not just a relationship with this living God, but the church is supposed to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. Now again, we know the Bible is true. We know that Jesus is the word of God and he is true. And yet so often the way we live our faith is we take the philosophies that we see round about us, the thing we're reading in this book, something Oprah said last week on our talk show, uh, our favorite political commentator, what they say, our favorite religious commentary, what they say, and we build our lives upon their things and we compromise the truth with other interesting philosophies in the world. The church is supposed to look different as the pillar holding up the roof and the foundation upon which it stands of truth you cannot live your life built on truth if you're not submitted to the word of god we know this but again i want to challenge you so much of what we communicate is the truth so much of what we say the bible teaches is just our interpretation or something that has been taught to us Many of us, our interpretation of scripture is so slanted by Western world. If you're here in the US, so much of your interpretation is slanted by the political situation in this country that you don't realize half the time that the things that we stand on and communicate are not the truth in the word of God, but adaptations of the truth that have been blended with other things in the world. We're supposed to evaluate our conduct based on what we find and hear. And allow this to shape the way that we live in the world. The way we live individually, the way we shape our church, the things we do as a church, the things we prioritize as a church, all built upon the word of God. For the rest of this passage, so Paul's saying, conduct yourself appropriately as people that live in the house of God. Now he's going to lay out the kind of two extreme options of what life looks like in relation to that. Option one, that we're gonna be able to live a life that ends up in godliness. Option two, we're gonna live a life that takes us in a completely different direction and have us depart from the truth. So outcome number one, that we would live godly lives that reflect him to the world. His his statement is, beyond all question, or the word could be translated in your Bible translations might say, according to our common confession, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. So an outcome of our conduct is that we live godly, pious lives. We exalt the Lord. We live in the way that he wants. But what Paul is trying to explain here is there is a source that it comes from. Right? Our godliness should come from a particular source. And what I think is fascinating is what comes next is a six-line, uh, beautiful little six-phrase statement. And when you look at it in the Greek, the, the meter or the rhythm of the sentences, it's, it's a poem or some commentators say it's, it's a hymn that was written in the early church that, that Paul is quoting from. But where does our godliness flow from? Paul could go anywhere right now to tell us who Jesus is, what he does, how we're supposed to depend on the spirit, how we're supposed to put to death the self. There's lots of stuff he says other places, but this is how he describes where godliness springs from. He, Jesus, appeared in the flesh, the incarnation, was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? In his resurrection from the dead. Jesus died a sinner's death as a sacrifice for our sins, but because he was sin-free, the Spirit vindicated him, raising, raising him from the dead as proof that he was without sin. He was seen by the angels. There's lots of ways this could be described. The angels that saw him at the tomb when the stone was rolled away. We could talk about the fact that angelic realm is watching what is happening in creation as Paul likes to tell us. That the angels are watching on going, that person's a sinner. Why is Jesus like forgiven him? Um, that the gospel has been seen and communicated to the angelic realm by our lives. That Jesus was raised to the right hand of the Father and placed over all these things again. So these statements are just a basic retelling of the gospel. He, his incarnation, his resurrection, his appointment back over the angels. He was preached among the nations, not preached to the Jewish people as they thought it was supposed to be, but preached among the nations, including us. Not only was it preached, but it was believed when it was received. For 2000 years, this message has been communicated Lives have been impacted. People believe it and are changed and transformed in such a way that the world around us looks on, takes note and hungers for what we have and then was taken up into glory at the right hand of the Father, the basic gospel, the incarnation, the resurrection, the preaching of it, the belief of it and the transformation that comes as a result. We have added so much to this gospel. We put so many standards on other people. Your life has to look a certain way. Your relationships have to be oriented a certain way. Uh, Your politics has to look a certain way in order to be part of the kingdom of God. Uh, You can't be liberal. You can't be progressive. we put all of these things on the top of it. Paul always brings us back to the core of the gospel that's why the series is called The Gospel-Shaped Church. Our conduct is supposed to be shaped by the gospel and the gospel alone, and not all of the other philosophies and business principles and political ideologies that we've added on top of it that distort the truth that we're supposed to walk in. Our lives are supposed to be motivated by love, which is the core of the gospel, right? We're supposed to love people, Do the people that you come in contact with, who see the world differently from you, who vote differently from you, who spend their money differently from you, uh, who believe different aspects of Christianity to you, uh, whose lifestyle looks drastically different from you, would those people who you interact with describe you as someone that loves them? Do they feel safe in your presence? Do they feel seen and cared for? The core of the gospel is love. And then we've got to remember again on the other side of the equation, the gospel doesn't say, so now everything goes. Do whatever you want. The Bible's been thrown out the window. It's all about love. The Bible starts with the command that You can do anything you want except here's the boundary don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil and then sets up a system from beginning to end of what is acceptable in God's sight and what is not part of love is that we care for someone uh, and then enough to help set the boundaries that they need you know God sets boundaries in his household just like we live under your roof we live by your rules boundaries are set are we offering love and are we setting the standards that God requires it is hard to set a standard and have someone receive that standard if they don't first feel loved right? i've said this a lot of times before like grace is the container for truth uh, so if you don't love and are not in relationship with someone if they don't respect your voice they're not going to hear the challenge the way it needs to come when it comes if The gospel is supposed to motivate and be the source of our godliness. Let me ask you this question. Is your heart still soft to the gospel? Is your heart still open and responsive to the gospel message? When you hear a testimony from someone, are you moved inside? When you read this little hymn, right? Was your heart moved? He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory? Was your heart moved or was that old news that you gloss over because yada, 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 I've heard it all before? Is your heart still soft to the gospel? The degree to which you will experience godliness in your life and the degree to which the people out there will see godliness in your life is tied to the degree to which your heart is still soft and open to the gospel. The areas of your life that I talked about right at the beginning, those areas that you know are wrong, that you're not living aligned with God the way you should, that He's constantly challenged you on, and you've still not done anything about it, that lack of godliness in that area is evidence that at that point in your life, your heart has become hardened to the gospel message and what it requires of you and response to our good and loving God. Is your heart still soft to the gospel? Are you known as a person who loves deeply? Are you forgiving the people who have done you wrong? Are you stewarding your money wisely and leveraging it for the sake of the kingdom? Are you seeing reconciliation in your family and in friendships are you seeing people through your life come into a saving knowledge of Jesus are you sharing the gospel and leading people to faith if these are not part of the fruit that you're seeing in your life you've got to ask the question is my heart still soft to the gospel Or have I closed part of my heart so that I'm not conducting myself the way God intends the people in his household to conduct their lives? So outcome one of a life of right conduct is that we lead uh, towards this outcome of godliness that will be seen by the world around about us and lead, a, lead them into faith in him. But then uh, Paul goes on as he moves into chapter four to describe the alternate path and the alternate outcome that we can walk into. Um, and it looks like this. In later times, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. These teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. People are gonna depart from the faith, they're gonna be caught up in deceit, and they're gonna given over to demonic doctrine. When your Christianity is about a set of beliefs, or a set of doctrines, you can leave it, right? Here's the doctrines that I subscribe to, I now don't like them or I don't want to submit to them so I can leave it. Or here's another doctrine or another set of beliefs that are more appealing to me in this season, so I'm gonna walk away from those ones and I'm gonna embrace these ones instead. If our Christianity is based on doctrine, then that's the easy outcome. If our Christianity is based in, if your faith experience is based in a deep loving relationship with Jesus, the living God, and you understand that he loves you, you're cultivating your faith in a way that you're hearing him communicate to you, you're seeing the transformation in your life, you're doing the things that he's asking you to do and you're seeing the fruit. Like if it's built in that relationship, you can't leave it, right? I think too often, uh, we communicate our faith as a set of doctrines, rather, uh, uh, and sometimes part of that doctrine is, come to Jesus, he's the savior of the world, he'll rescue you from hell. But a lot of the time, what we're not offering people is let me show you my affection for Christ. Let me show you the level of his affection for me. Let me teach you the way we communicate let me show you the transformation that he is currently working in me. Not sometimes we can do. Here's my testimony of how he saved me, like forty years ago. Um, if you have to rely on a forty-year-old testimony, something's wrong, right? You should have testimony from today of what he's doing in us. But if it's built in that relationship, you can't walk away from that relationship. I think it's interesting when when we read passages like this, and especially. Uh, we tend to think historically, right? Paul is talking to Timothy in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And when we use words like abandoning the faith, following deceiving spirits, and things that are taught by demons, in our Western modern world, we tend to like, okay, that's something that Paul is talking about for back then, that doesn't happen today. I find myself asking the question, what are the deceiving doctrines or the demonic doctrines the things taught by demons that we see today. I think there's some things that we can look at in the history of the church that we should feel some disgust over. You go way further back, we've got things like the Crusades, where Christians believed that because Jesus had called them, they could go into other countries that had different religions and wipe out through military conquest those people and completely destroy and annihilate them so that they would be victorious rooted in demonic doctrine and deceitful teaching that is totally contrary to the way of Jesus. We can come to more recent history and think about things that have been a big deal in in the media recently as it's all resurfaced. Think about slavery. The church was a major advocate of slavery in this country and the church used the Bible to justify the way we treated people who had a different color of skin from us. Christianity ripped people from their home country and their family and brought them over here and subjected them to forced labor and no rights in the name of the gospel, a demonic doctrine right? Anything that oppresses and subjugates and dehumanizes another person is completely demonic. What are the areas? So here's one of the issues when we talk about these kinds of things. There's two paths laid out, right? Outcome one is godliness and outcome two is we depart from the faith, we buy into deceit, we believe these demonic doctrines. And what we tend to do is go, Well, I'm not this one. I'm not believing demonic doctrines, and I'm not deceived. I'm godly, right? I know the truth. I love the Bible. The question is, I asked you the question, who in here has all of this right? No one put up their hand, which means every person in this room has some doctrines they believe that aren't true. And it is possible that every person in this room has bought into something that is taught by the demonic realm instead. So the question becomes, what are the areas of your life where you're walking in deceit, where you've bought into deceitful teachings? What are the areas of your theology that are causing you to treat people in a way that that dishonors God? And that is evidence that what you've actually bought into is a demonic doctrine that you are masquerading as the truth of God. Try to work out if there's anyone going well I don't have any of that I have the truth <laughs> there are things do you take the time to evaluate just because you believed it for 40 years doesn't mean it's true just because all the teachers that you like to listen to say the same thing doesn't mean it's the truth we've got to be willing to evaluate I think again, and each country has their version of this. Every country where Christianity is has a nationalistic version of Christianity that elevates their nation over others. Christian nationalism is a demonic doctrine in this country. There is a way that our faith and our politics fit together. There is a way that we can walk out the gospel and celebrate the culture that we're part of. But there are ways that we take political messaging and we elevate the place where we are above other people and it is demonic. Are you aware of the places in your version of the gospel in your life of Christianity, are you aware of the ways that your westernism has polluted the gospel message? Are you aware of the ways that your politics on whatever side of the the dualistic split there is, there are people that don't sit on either side. So whatever place you sit politically, are you aware of where your politics has trumped the truth of scripture rather than allowing the truth of scripture to sit in authority over your politics? Are you aware? Are you aware when you look at the relationships you have, the prejudices you have towards people, the way you look down at people or speak down at people, are you aware of the false beliefs that you're holding to that allow you to look at another human being and make them lesser or not worthy? Or, as we're talking about in pre-service prayer today, that we exclude them from participation in the church Well, participation in the church is the very thing that they need in order to heal them of the thing that you think is the reason they should be excluded. That makes sense? We say, here's your sin issue. Because of that sin issue, you're not welcome in our church. But so you know, the gospel is what will heal your sin issue. But just go somewhere else and find it because this is not the place that you're gonna be welcome to do that. And we rob them of the very uh, tools that they need in order to be healed and whole. So what are the ways that you've departed from the truth? What are the worldly philosophies that you have blended with your faith? And what are you gonna do about it? If these words are true, if these words are true, right? Paul writing to Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. These words are true. It is possible that people in this room will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. That could be you based on what you are allowing into your mind and your heart and your soul. It could be true based on the people that you choose to surround yourself with. It Could be true based on the ways that we harden ourselves to the gospel and don't allow them to move in us. And we often think if you walk with Jesus, oh, I would never walk away. I hope it would never happen, but, but, but I, I, watch, I, watch a, I watch people who walk with Jesus who have tragedy strike in their life and all of a sudden they go, that's one thing too much. I love Jesus, but that thing is not okay. And they reject him. Are you one tragedy away from rejecting the Savior of the world? Are we building a relationship with Jesus, a loving relationship with his people, conducting ourselves the way that he calls us to conduct, Entering into a conversational relationship with the living God that sustains us through all the things that we experience. The end of this passage says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So I wanna ask you a question similar to the one I asked before. In what ways has your conscience been seared? Our conscience is supposed to be soft. Like you you walk into a situation that's not okay and your conscience says, ah, this is not okay, I gotta run from this. You read something that's not wholesome and your conscience goes, ah, I should distance myself from this. This is not helpful. The Spirit convicts us. You're reading the Bible and you're like, ah, I've not forgiven that person. Like, I should forgive them. And we go... Uh, they're the one that hurt me, they should make the first move. Do you know what you're doing in that moment? Searing your conscience so that anytime time God wants to bring up forgiveness and reconciliation, your, your conscience will no longer identify it. Oh God, I should give generously. I need to rework my finances to support your work here and around the world. Oh, but, but that new car, repaying my loans, saving up for my house. And we take that moment of conviction where our conscience was ready to respond and we sear it with a hot iron, burning that part away so the next time we hear someone talk about generosity in the kingdom of God, our heart no longer responds to it. I think about uh, one of the most insidious things in our culture, pornography. The number of guys that I sit with who have this moment, and women that I sit with who have these moments that they say, you know, I, I, I tell myself, oh, I'll, I'll never do it again, or, or, or I'll tell myself, yeah, it's just this once. After this once, I'll never do it again. And in that moment where your spirit says, don't do this, don't look at this, and you say, ah, this is the last time, and we override our conscience, we sear it. What are the ways your conscience has been seared? What are the places in your life that you have consistently been convicted not to do? You've continued to ignore the voice of God so that now your heart is hard against it. So that now when you're out in the world and you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, you tend to back down out of fear. Your hypocrisy stops you from saying the things that you've said, or heaven forbid, you actually share the gospel. And then someone says, who are you to speak like that because you do X, Y, or Z? Is your heart still soft to the gospel? And in what ways has your conscience been seared? Paul uses a couple of examples out of this of of what it looks like to, to go off a little bit. He uses the example of marriage and food some people at the time are saying just don't get married some people are telling you you can't eat this food if you're one of those diet fad people that are going to tell me i can't eat anything i'm taking you right here i'll eat what i want Um, everything god created is good nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of god and prayer paul always the bible always bringing us back to these two things right We wanna have right conduct in the world. It's about the word of God and it's about prayer. Like I I hope in the almost three years of being here, I sound like a broken record with these things and I hope at times I say this and you're like, oh, so simple. (laughs) Are you in the word consistently? Are you allowing the truth of scripture to take more priority over your life than TV and books and news articles and podcasts? or do the other voices in the world have more weight in your life than the word of God? And are you cultivating a life of prayer so that you can discern his will, so that you can learn in a moment when he's moving and when he's not? Um, He always brings it back to the word and prayer. But in here, last thing I I wanna address in this. He's highlighting marriage and he's highlighting food. You can go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter one and two, Adam and Eve are brought together in marriage and God says, what what God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage is an institution that was given at creation and deemed good. And then food, God gave Adam and Eve all the the plants and animals and said, go eat. And then even after um, Noah, uh, God makes sure that people know that they can eat all the plants and all of the animals, all the food is good. He's talking about things that God created, deemed very good that people are then saying, this is not okay. So if, if someone says, don't get married, if someone says, don't eat these foods, that's not all right. The statement says, everything is good because it's created by the word of God in prayer. So what this is not saying, and, and we know this, but I just wanna make it clear, it's not saying I can pray over the pornography and bless it. And all of a sudden it's now consecrated and good. It's not saying I can take a, a, a political ideology and consecrate it by the word of God in prayer. It's not saying I can take certain lifestyles and, and just pray over them and consecrate them and make them good. He's talking specifically about things that are seen in creation that God has clearly articulated and given, that people then start to oppose. He's saying we consecrate them. They're consecrated through the truth of the word and through a thanksgiving in prayer. The word in in prayer, back back to the beginning, it's not not an instruction to have a relationship with a book and just going through shopping lists of prayer requests. It's an invitation to relationships. These things are consecrated by relationship with the living God, right? We come to the word to hear his voice clearly. Uh, We come in prayer to offer our hearts to him, to ask him to move in the world and to hear his will as we move. Little plug, uh, we value prayer here. Tuesday at 4 p.m. if you are free, there's a group of people that meet um, through in the nursery every week to pray over the prayer requests that are here. You do not have to come every week, but any week that you're free at 4 p.m., come and join us and pray. Every week we gather at 9 a.m. before the service. We usually kick off about 9.05, and we take 35 to 40 minutes to pray over the service in our neighborhood and intercede for the world. Come and join us as we continue to focus on being people of the word and people of prayer. So back to my beginning question, are we conducting ourselves correctly? Are you conducting yourself appropriately? Is your heart still soft to the gospel? In what ways has your conscience been seared? Everything that Paul's setting up here is about getting the church to live healthily And a healthy church is less about getting the right structures in place and it's less about this is what you have to do and this is what you don't have to do and it's more about how receptive are we to the gospel and how much is that at the center of everything we do. So I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna give us a question to discuss before we we close on worship. God, you set in scripture very clear instructions for how you want us to live our lives. God, we always have to acknowledge that we are broken, that we are sinful, uh, that our hearts are more uh, focused on ourselves and our own desires than they are about you and the world around us. And God, we need your help. We're seeing you move here in this church because we're putting your word at the center, we're putting prayer at the center, and we're trying hard to have our hearts uh, soft to the gospel and our consciences responsive to your spirit. That God, we're so guilty of living unthinkingly. God, our hearts get hard. We, we go for coffee with a friend that do- doesn't know you, and we don't even think about sharing the gospel. God will quite happily see an ad pop up uh, on Facebook and spend our money, but yet when we hear there's needs in your kingdom, we're not willing to be generous. God, it's so easy to think, uh, you know, I need X, Y, or Z and jump on Amazon and have it here by the next day. And yet there's missionaries that are trying to get funded to go to the field and there's needs that happen in the community around us, and we don't even think to direct our money that way. God, there are relationships in our lives that are broken and estranged. I know they exist in my life as much as everyone else's, and and yet, God, our our hurt and our woundedness and our pride and our anger stop us from reaching out to bring reconciliation. God, and then so often we see the issues in the world, we see brokenness around us, uh, and. Perhaps we're we're so overwhelmed by how little we can do to help uh, that we just shut our eyes and pretend that it doesn't exist. God, we need you. We can't conduct ourselves appropriately without your spirit. We can't conduct ourselves appropriately without meaningful, deep relationships that walk with us in the pursuit of holiness. So God, make us attentive to our motives. God, help us to evaluate our beliefs and help us to be really quick to apologize and to repent of all of the ways that we fall short of your standard. And then God, finally, the enemy is an accuser. He likes to come in and poke us and make us feel guilt and shame over the ways that we fall short. And so we stand against his voice. And we say, Jesus, thank you that despite all of our shortcomings, you love us deeply. That your love covers over the multitude of our sins. That despite our brokenness, you choose to indwell us. And so God, make us good hosts for your presence, both individually and as a church. God, help us to conduct ourselves appropriately and to walk into full flourishing, not just for the sake of our church, not just for the sake of the lives and souls around us, but for the sake of your name we pray, amen. So I wanna give you, uh, gonna give you 30 seconds of quiet. Here's the question. And what areas has your heart hardened or your conscience seared? So I want to give you 30 seconds just to think about this question. And then I'm going to invite you to grab someone next to you and share. And then pray for each other. And if you feel like there's some things in my life that are stuff that I don't want to say out loud because I'm embarrassed or I feel a lot of shame, You can just tell them you've identified some things and you need some prayer. But let's, 30 seconds to think and then I'll invite us to share.